This is A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends, a podcast ministry of Somebody Cares America, being a tangible expression of Christ in a hurting world. Welcome to another Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends. You know, growing up, we used to hear the term, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, we call that the golden rule. What some people don't realize is that is actually Jesus' own words when he spoke on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew seven twelve. In fact, it says, So in everything do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Later in the book of Matthew, a Pharisee asked Jesus to name the greatest commandment. And here's Jesus' words, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said, all the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments. In my last podcast, we explored how to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. As we look through the lens of the first four of the Ten Commandments, in fact, we called it for the love of God. In this and the next podcast, I want to take a look at how to love your neighbor as yourself through the lens of the next six of the Ten Commandments. In today's podcast, we'll discuss Commandment 5, 6, and 7, which is honor your father and your mother, you shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery. But I also want us to look at some spiritual dynamics here and expand our thinking as far as what those commandments refer to, not just in the literal sense of murder and adultery, but the adultery of our hearts, of the place that we allow our minds to go, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. Also, the spirit of bitterness or hatred towards others, angry towards others. So we're going to look at some of these things as well. So let's get back to commandment number five, which is honor your father and your mother. It's the fifth commandment, and it reads in the Amplified Bible like this. Regard, treat with honor, do obedience, and courtesy your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God gives you, in Exodus 20, verse 12. See, the promise associated with this commandment is that your days may be long. It emphasizes the direct correlation between a person's attitude towards his parents and the degree to which the person experiences the fulfillment of God's promises in their personal life. The family unit is a microcosm of the kingdom of God, providing earthly patterns for authority and protective structures that exist in the spiritual realm as well. This is why the Bible teaches that the mystery of the kingdom can be understood through the family unit. The overarching spiritual picture is that after we experience salvation through the new birth, God becomes our heavenly father through the process of spiritual adoption. You see, once we become a member of God's spiritual family, and submit to the authority of that new family, God's promises of nurturing, protection, guidance, provision, and instruction are released to us. The blessings of obedience to God begin with the obedience to the parental authorities He has given us. In the ideal family situation, loving parents who follow the Lord train their children in the ways of the Lord. By God's design, parents, not the priest, were given the responsibility and authority to instruct, train, and admonish their children the ways of God and to establish His kingdom rule in the family. Parents should be honored by children the same way that God should be honored by His adopted spiritual children. Parents who are submitted to God 
and actively seek to obey the commands of God, create an environment within the home that invites the blessings of God on their family. Children who honor the instructions and wishes of the parents fall in line with the authority structure God has designed and releases the promises of heaven to them. Based on the original language used in scripture, author and teacher John Bevere defines honor as appreciating, holding in esteem or in high regard, and treating with value. I often teach about four attributes that attract God's presence, holiness, humility, honesty, and honor. Some years ago, I joined some of our core team of the ministry, and we studied John Bevere's Honors Reward book. Dishonoring our parents, John says in the book, has become a normal way of life in America. It's steeped in our culture. You see, when children don't honor their parents, doors to bitterness, unforgiveness, anger, and all sorts of relational sorrows are opened. Conflict is reduced and the peace of God prevails in the home when the children honor and obey parental authority. Both the quality and the quantity of a person's life are enhanced through simple obedience to the Word of God. You see, like any other earthly parent, our Heavenly Father is concerned about the safety and well-being of His children. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20-24, through 24, He told children, Listen to your parents. Listen to their guidance, as it will serve as a protection for you. He says this, My son, observe the commandments of your father, and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is light, and reproofs for discipline are the ways of life. See, the teachings of parents are to be given as a light to guide their children through the treacherous turns and enticements of life, the difficulties and challenges in life. Providing children with the means to discern safety from danger and to make decisions that will not harm them is a parental responsibility. Children, though, tend to resist the discipline of their parents because they do not recognize that it is one of the greatest expressions of love that parents can offer. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12 in the NAS version says, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves even as a father, the son in whom he delights. But what about our ungodly parents? Must we keep the commandments to honor our father and mother when the parents are not practicing godly lifestyles? Although each situation must be individually weighed in light of the entire counsel of God's word, Genuinely speaking, the answer is yes. As long as the parents do not act illegally, unethically, or contrary to the Word of God, even when complete obedience is not possible, parents should still be treated with an element of respect. If we disagree with someone in authority, it must be done with an attitude of humility and respect. God is honored when proper respect is given to parents and other authorities. The most difficult situations of all is when a child has been sexually, emotionally, verbally, or physically abused by his parents. What is God's answer regarding abusive parents? Is the believer required to remain in abusive situations? Absolutely not. In that case, the parents have forfeited their rights to govern the child's life. But let me point this out, however, that even in those types of situations, it's important for the child or the victim to avoid becoming swallowed up in bitterness, anger, and shame that continues to propagate the evil that's already been done to them. Many who have experienced abuse at the hands of a parent find it impossible 
to imagine coming to a place of true forgiveness. How could one ever honor the parent who had damaged them? If someone is still in an abusive situation, get help. By honoring God, though, with sacrificial obedience, we open the door through which the miracle power of healing and restoration for our damaged lives can flow. We've got to release out of our spirits even what has been propagated against us. We can still show respect for the office of a mother and father and pray for their salvation and deliverance and healing in their lives without having to be under that abusive situation. I experienced this type of divine healing in my relationship as well with my parents and especially with my stepfather. After I surrendered my life to God, I often would call home to talk to my family and I continue witness to them about Jesus. But often when I called, my stepfather would be drinking and if he answered the phone, he'd shout expletives at me. If all you can do when you call to talk to us is to talk about that Jesus blankety blank, then don't call anymore. My initial response was anger and I developed a wrong attitude, but then Jesus began to break my heart for my stepfather, my mother, and my family. I planned to return to Washington for my sister's high school commencement ceremony, but just before I left Houston, I found out that my mother had suffered a heart attack and was hospitalized. And there were other dynamics within our family that was causing me to again get feelings of deep anger and frustration. I was angry at what alcohol had done and was doing to my family. Wrestling with all these emotions, I heard God speak clearly to my heart, Don't go as an angry son, but go as my son. These words pierced my heart with conviction, but also gave me the confidence that I would be able to obey God even in this hard situation. A confrontation was inevitable, but when it occurred, I spoke to my stepfather, to my mother, to my brother and my sister, and with an attitude of respect and compassion for my father and my family, I read the Bible to him, and he eventually came to Christ. You see, freed from the bondage of alcohol, my stepfather was truly a great guy. He loved his family, loved his nation, served faithfully in the military for over 20 years, and I really enjoyed being with him. I'm a personal testimony of God's grace to obey, even in extremely difficult circumstances. And then, with that grace, he gives us the blessings of obedience. I know everyone's situation is different. And if you struggle with honoring a parent because of some abuse or abandonment, turn to the Lord first and foremost and know He loves you with an everlasting love. Seek Him how to move forward and ask Him to show you who you could truly confide in for the support and encouragement as you walk out this principle into the freedom of Christ. I also go into much more depth about honoring our parents in my book, Living Life Well. In fact, you can download that chapter for free. If you're struggling with this issue, Go to somebodycares.org backslash parents and you can get a free download of that chapter of the book. While earthly parents are responsible for the oversight of our physical well-being, God-given spiritual leaders are responsible for the oversight of our souls. They may not be the best teachers, communicators, or pastors, but they are the people who honestly care for us and confront areas in our lives that need correction. The concept of spiritual fatherhood is found in the writings of the Apostle Paul. It says in 1 Corinthians 4, 15-16, For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. In some translations it says you may have ten thousands of teachers, but not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. I exhort you therefore, be imitators of me. 1 Corinthians 4, 15-16 It's important to recognize and honor the spiritual fathers and mothers whom God has placed in our lives. 
Though at times we may be impressed by gifted teachers or charismatic leaders, they may not be the ones who take responsibility for the cares of our souls. An important characteristic of a good spiritual leader is whether he imitates Jesus Christ. After determining who has been entrusted with the oversight of our souls, we should honor them in the same way we honor our earthly parents, submitting their instruction and praying for them when they are struggling, opens us to God's blessing of spiritual prosperity and peace. As we honor the commandments of God, we receive the promise of long life in the land and that the Lord has promised us. Let's go into the sixth commandment of God, which is, You shall not murder. Of all the mysteries of God's creation, the greatest is the mystery of life itself. The Bible teaches that God, whose very essence is life, formed man from the dust of the ground and imparted life to him by his divine breath. As the author of life, God reserves the right to bestow or withhold life as he pleases. Although he is responsible for all the deferring life forms in existence today, only man is created in his image, and any assault upon humans is of special concern to God himself. The foundation undergirding the sixth commandment is that the precious gift of life springing forth from the character and nature of God is due the respect of all humanity. The prophetic writings of the Old Testament, as well as the teachings of Jesus, communicate God's displeasure with those who do not reverence the sanctity of life by the shedding of innocent blood. Throughout our land, roots of bitterness express themselves through racism and violence. Innocent, unborn children are sacrificed at the altar of convenience through abortion. There seems to be an increase of an attitude, calloused attitude and actions towards murder, slander, and hatred. It's rampant on the airwaves and even in the political arena and all around us. The key to living life well in regard to this commandment is to combat the spirit of murder and death with the spirit of life. During the early years of the history of mankind, God established the severest penalties for murdering another human being. In Genesis 9, 5, and 6, God tells Noah, long before he gave the Ten Commandments to the Israelites, And surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man's blood his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Although modern men, including believers, dispute the humanness of capital punishment versus rehabilitation of the perpetrator, the overall implication of the scripture is clear. The Bible teaches us that the reason for such a harsh penalty is that man was made in the image of God. In its most basic sense, it is a strike against the holy nature of God himself to commit murder. The Bible explicitly identifies Satan as the source of all murder and deception. In a scathing rebuke of the religious leaders of his day, Jesus exposed the motives of those who resisted the truth, which made them so angry they began to plot Jesus' murder. He says this in John chapter 8, verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Again, John chapter 8, verse 44. Satan's hatred of God is so extreme 
that he desires to inflict pain, suffering, and death upon all mankind because they are created in the image of God. When he is able to influence a person to take the life of another human being, he's using deception, stress, greed, lust, or ignorance. He has now attained his twisted goal. Jesus taught us that murder is defined broader than the physical taking of life, though. In Matthew 5, 21-22, we get this fuller definition from Jesus himself. You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. With this teaching, Jesus effectively broadened the scope of the commandment to encompass murderous thoughts, words, deeds, anger, and insults, as well as the taking of innocent life. In Jesus' view, calling a brother rocker, empty-headed, or nitwit, or a fool was an insult equal to physical murder. It was understood that killing the physical body was strictly prohibited by God, but it was less well known that the prohibition also extended to murderous attacks on the character and personality of someone else. Jesus taught this spiritual principle to the people so they might be clearly instructed in the ways of God. It is possible to walk under the influence of a spirit of murder and yet never physically harm someone. Even Christians murder one another with their tongues and believe there is no wrongdoing. These attacks can be subtly masked under the guise of discernment or sharing information for prayer purposes. The spirit of murder can manifest itself as slander of character, ridicule, attacking dreams, or demeaning aspirations but it is usually rooted in anger, envy, or jealousy. In all of these instances, the tongue is the primary weapon used by Satan to launch his murderous attacks, and so it is the tongue that must be subdued. It is the heart that conceives all sorts of evil, but it's the tongue that releases the evil to defile and damage the speaker as well as the hearer. The power of the tongue to bring destruction is not to be taken lightly. You see, James identifies the tongue as the part of the body that can do the most damage to men and can be most perverted by the purposes of hell. And he says this, And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire of hell. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. That's James chapter 3, verse 6, and verse 8 through 9, verse 16, and chapter 4, verse 2. You see, these excerpts from the book of James places slander, jealousy, selfish ambition, and murder in the same context. While James prohibits cursing a brother because he is made in the image of God, we see the very same reference in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, prohibiting murder. You must execute anyone who murders another person 
For to kill a person is to kill a living being made in the image of God. Assaults by men against one another result in the murder of character, hopes, dreams, and visions, and such attacks destroy the image of God in a man which accompanies that image. This is counter to Jesus' expressed desire for men that they might have life and might have it abundantly, John 10.10. Jesus shed his blood in order to wash our minds, cleanse our spirits, renew our hearts, and forgive our sins. Jesus said he would never turn away anyone who comes to him. No matter how wretched their past or how hopeless their future, Jesus presents this hope to all of us, for all life is precious in his sight. If we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, we will be redemptive in all of our actions toward others and honor the life of God in all humans. We will encourage that which is life-giving and discourage and refrain from whatever produces death. May murder be far from the heart and action of all who name the name of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the commandment number seven. You shall not commit adultery. Finally, with all the many deceptions at his disposal, Satan is most successful at bringing devastation and sorrow to mankind in the area of sexual temptation. The widespread acceptance of sexual infidelity, promiscuity in our culture is testimony that Satan has undermined the foundation of family and fidelity to God. From the beginning, God established sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife as the framework for blessing and prospering mankind. Sadly, though, Satan has persuaded the minds of many that feeling good is a valid reason for being unfaithful or engaging in sexual relationships outside of marriage. Instead of valuing love in the biblical sense, today anything goes to justify infidelity and sexual immorality. In fact, some would take our liberty into becoming license, and from license we've seen widespread licentiousness. Often, individuals justify infidelity and divorce on the basis of romantic love, while the considerations of God's agape love for children, family, and God are thrown out the window. More often than not, sexual sin has its roots in lust or emotional need, self. Lustful men take advantage of emotionally needy women enticing them into relationships that have no chance of meeting their needs. The result is that at least one of the individuals is emotionally, spiritually, and sometimes physically, either through abuse or sexually transmitted disease, devastated. Satan wins again. Society bought the lie that God's command against adultery and other forms of sexual immorality or perversion is somehow repressive and prudish. We could avoid so much sorrow and heartache by simply trusting God and believing that He has our best interests at heart. The word adulterate, in its generic sense, means to debase, corrupt, or make impure. In the strictest sense of the term, adultery occurs when a married man or a woman participates in sexual encounters with someone other than their spouse. Such a union corrupts the individuals involved and damages the relationships with their covenant marriage partners. Although fornication, sex outside of marriage, is somewhat different from adultery, the biblical warning against both is equally severe. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul wrote this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, or idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, or drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, 
but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. God's judgments rest on all those who are guilty of these things. But the good news is that the incredible grace of God is able to bring washing, justification, and sanctification to all who call upon the name of Jesus and receive forgiveness and deliverance from sin. It's also possible to commit adultery without actually being in physical contact with another person. Just as Jesus broadened the scope of what constitutes murder to include hatred and slander, he also explained the sin of adultery includes gazing upon another in order to lust after her or him. This is completely contrary to our society today, which relies heavily upon sexual activity and pornography to sell everything from cinema tickets and automobiles to common household products. Sex is promoted everywhere as a means to increase financial prosperity. Jesus taught that sin begins in the heart of man. It is possible to sin in the sight of God without even physically committing the act. This is a radical teaching. It's based on the knowledge of the catastrophic consequences of sin, as well as the surprising value God places on the human soul. Jesus has such high regard for each individual that he strongly opposes any action or spiritual state that places anyone in jeopardy. This radical resistance to sin is evident in a Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her in his heart already. And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perishes than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one part of your body perish than for your whole body to go to hell. Over the centuries, some have taken this way out of extreme by actually making themselves eunuchs. Like in the third century Christian writer Origen who castrated himself, which is not Jesus' intent. But Jesus' teaching does advocate extreme avoidance of things that lead the heart into sin, lust, or adultery. If looking lustfully on a woman equals adultery, then the eye should not be allowed to linger on things that corrupt the spirit and bring us into bondage. Today, the floodgate of pornography on social media, in movies, and print makes keeping one's gaze fixed in a healthy direction very challenging and very difficult. But it's necessary for those who struggle with sexual temptation that we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. If Satan is given room to stimulate an inordinate sexual desire through the eye gate, then he can set into motion a chain of fantasy and lust that eventually brings disaster in the physical realm in our lives. Wrecked families, distressed children, divorced couples, and sexually transmitted disease, even death, are consequences of a society that refuses to acknowledge God's wisdom in setting sexual intimacy within the bounds of heterosexual marriage. Faithfulness is the opposite of adultery. From the very beginning, when God created man and woman, He established the covenant of marriage so a couple would live together in faithful, binding relationship with the intimacy being so great they would no longer be viewed as separate but united as one. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 says, For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This union between a husband and a wife is a mystical, spiritual picture of God's intentions for the relationship He plans for Himself and His bride or His people. God decreed that a man and a woman should not come together outside of marriage, 
because of the holy nature of the union itself. This is why marriage should never be entered into hastily or flippantly. In the eyes of the Lord, it is sacred, binding. It's a covenant relationship that is sealed and ratified by the shedding of blood. When two people enter a marriage covenant, they're agreeing to be faithful to their partner in all aspects of relationship, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Many people commit emotional adultery by giving their attention and emotional energy to someone other than their spouse. This is no less adultery in the eyes of God than committing the physical act, and in fact, this type of sharing could actually culminate in the sexual act itself. Satan's strategy to make the purity of human sexuality appear repressive and prudish has brought the Christian view into ridicule in our day. This is partially due to unscriptural teaching within the church today. The world would have us believe that Christians are missing out on a good thing, but the truth is they are taking the exact steps needed to ensure that their sex lives are as fulfilling as God intended. The Song of Solomon helps us understand that God's intention for sex to be completely enjoyable. He intends for couples to experience intimacy and pleasure together without cumbersome emotional and soul ties. Those former sexual relationships infringe on the mental and emotional energy designed exclusively for your spouse. The ghosts of former intimate physical relationships bring unnecessary complications into the marriage, but of course these issues can be overcome through the grace and mercy of Christ. But how much better not to have to deal with them in the first place? Words cannot convey the amount of pain that adultery and sexual perversion has on families. It harms the trust and intimacy vital to any marital relationship, and the damage can be so severe that the marriage cannot be repaired. If the adultery leads to divorce, children endure the trauma as well. Even if the offending partner genuinely repents and is restored to the marriage, it usually takes years to repair the lost trust and intimacy. It even scatters the children who are affected as well. God created intimate sexual relationships to be enjoyable in the context of marriage because He knows that intimacy of this depth requires a place of security. Sexual intimacy outside this guarded alliance ultimately brings heartache and damage to relationships and even bondage. Deviation from God's established order, even once, allows Satan just the opening he needs to destroy our lives. Many people have had sexual partners without a real understanding or knowledge of God's purpose and plan. Others may have known better, but were overcome by temptation. Can the damage of the past indiscretion be repaired? Absolutely yes. Spiritually speaking, God can redeem your virginity through the cross of Jesus Christ. If you brought the ghost of sexual sins to your own marriage, you can repent of the past and start fresh. The scripture teaches that the blood of Jesus not only cleanses us from sin, but it also cleanses our conscience from evil works. Now, if you're presently single, but have had sex outside of marriage, ask God to forgive you of your past and give you back your spiritual virginity. Agree with Him that you will keep yourself pure from this point on and trust Him for the power to walk in purity. Can you imagine the joy and the blessing of God upon your wedding night as you present yourself spiritually pure to your partner? By walking in obedience and purity, you're actually empowering yourself and your marriage to levels of trust and intimacy that you would not have otherwise known. God promised to make us brand new and pure in His sight. Memories of past transgressions may never completely go away, 
but they can be dealt with by remembering God's provision of forgiveness. The miracle of Christ and the cross is so powerfully effective that even though the memory of the sin may remain, it will seem as if it had happened to someone else. In God's love and mercy, He sets laws in place to protect us and others from the destruction Satan wants to inflict on us. Disrespect, murder, and sexual immorality all cause great harm to those who perpetrate them as well as to their victims. But living a life of honor towards one another, valuing life and living in purity leads to blessings and the peace with both God and others. In the next podcast, we will explore the final commandments God gave to the Israelites and see how living out the law of love fulfills each one. As I mentioned earlier in this podcast, if you'd like a more in-depth discussion on the commandments to honor your father and mother, you can download that chapter for free at www.somebodycares.org backslash parents. You can purchase the entire Living with Life Well book from the e-store at our somebodycares.org website. If the Lord has been dealing with your heart and you're feeling a conviction of any sins during the podcast today, take time now to confess those things to the Lord. Ask for His forgiveness, as well as the power to turn from those sins and live rightly with Him. If you'd like to pray in agreement, I can help guide you in a prayer right now, but let it come from your own heart and your own words. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your love and the unmerited favor and grace you have given to me. I ask that you will work in me to both will and do your good pleasure. Thank you for the parents you have given me. I pray that I would always be given the grace to honor them as you would have me honor them. I pray for those in spiritual authority in my life. I pray that you would keep their spirits pure before you and protect them from the deceptions of the enemy. Lord, grant to me a contrite and submissive spirit so that I may honor you by honoring those that you placed in my life. And Father, I also ask that you would keep murder, anger, and bitter jealousy far from my heart. Set a guard over my lips, that I may never bring murderous accusation, slander, or ridicule against any man, for they are created in your image and likeness. May the words of my mouth always engender life, faith, hope, and love to those who hear them. And Father, you are the giver of life, so make a life giver of me. And Father, I ask for your grace to live a life of sexual purity. Please cleanse me of all impure and adulterous thoughts, as well as anything I have done in disobedience to your commandments. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh that excites. I pray that you would establish my heart before you and that I would never be guilty of giving anything of this world the affection that belongs only to you. I pray that you would make me a pure, spotless bride before you without wrinkle or blemish. Lord, help me to know how to love you as you have loved me. Help me to know how to express your love to others. And Lord, may you be glorified in all that I do say and think. God, I know that you are the only one that is perfect. But in my human frailties, in my wrong choices that I've made throughout my life, in my human imperfections, God, I know you're doing a perfect work in and through me. So Lord, I give you my heart, my soul, my mind. I pray that you be glorified, Lord. And I pray that you would help me to keep my focus on you and to walk in the place of righteousness in Christ Jesus. Lord, I desire to honor you in all my ways, in my human imperfections, in my wrong choices of the past. I know I can't change my past, but the decisions I make every day 
determine my future. Be Lord of my life. Be glorified in my life. Father, in and through me, in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.